I'm Nicole Doyley, and this is season seven of Let's Talk Conversations on Race. On Let's Talk, we discuss various topics on race, hoping to spark conversation and foster greater understanding, empathy, and healing. You can subscribe to Let's Talk on your favorite podcast platform. And now, if you prefer to watch these interviews, you can subscribe to my YouTube channel, Nicole Doyley. Now, let's talk. People don't understand the level of disdain that people have for biracial people because we are the exact replica or representation of what they don't want. So it's like the fact that we live and exist makes people very uncomfortable. And people wanna box you in. They have to figure you out and box you in. If they can't do that, and we're not boxable really, for them it's like, well, what do, where do I put you? What do I do? So. I had to prove myself time and time again. Well, today on Let's Talk, we have with us Jenny Thomas, who is going to share her fascinating story about transracial adoption and also some of the pain that she experienced when she met her biological mom around some of the pain around race and racism. So welcome, Jenny. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Nicole. Such a pleasure. Such a pleasure. Yes. Can you tell us about your birth parents, you know, their their race and how they met and then the age you were when you were adopted? Yes. Uh, so my parents, my biological parents, they met at a campus, a college campus party and uh, had a little fling. And my mother was at the time who is Caucasian. She was approximately 18 when maybe 17 and then 18 when she had me somewhere in that range. My father was a student at Brockport University at the time. He was playing three sports and excelling. He had come up from Florida. My mother's family was from Ohio originally. My uh, my mother's father was a pastor and I was surrendered to the state of New York and then adopted at six months. Why did your mom relinquish you? What was that all about? Was it her age or so your biological dad is black? Your biological yes, mom is black. Yes, yeah, sorry about that. Yes. So what was it, you know, what made her choose to give you up for adoption? Well, the story that I was told and that I hung on to through my younger years was that she just didn't have the family support and didn't have the means to take care of me. And so she grappled with the decision for six months. And then finally at the six month mark, she was like, I can't do it. And it was, how it was explained to me was a very, very traumatic occurrence mm -hmm. for her. But that's what I held on to. Mm -hmm. After I found my biological mother, family of hers actually sat me down to tell me what really happened. And what really happened was that she was involved with men of different races. So when she got pregnant with me and told her family, there was still, you know, some confusion as to whose child I was. So when I was first born, blue eyes very fair skin and lighter hair, they were thinking that I might have been Caucasian, but they weren't sure. 
So as the months passed, they decided to keep me around. And as my grand, my mother's mother referred to me as it, when I met her, it lived in the room. We didn't pick it up much because we didn't want to get attached to it. And I had to clarify with her, is it me? She was like, yes, we didn't give it a name because we didn't want to get attached to it. Wow. So when I was adopted, I was extremely malnourished and wasn't my adoptive mother could tell that I hadn't been held affectionately a lot because I was just awkward. So at six months of age, she finally decided that I guess the family sat down and decided this is a black child. We cannot keep a black child. 1975, we will not have it. And they relinquished me to the state of New York, which I believe I stayed in a foster home for maybe a couple of days before I was officially adopted in December of 19. 19- 75. So do you know what your birth dad, where he was at in this whole decision-making process? Once you started to get darker and clearly was was his, Mm -hmm. did he he re-enter the scene at all? I don't think that they had a real relationship. I think Mm -hmm. that it was just a fly-by-night situation. According to my paternal uncle, he was one, my biological father was one of 17. My biological mother is one of seven. Wow. So he, my uncle swears up and down to me that he met my biological mother with my father. She called him and said, you know, we had a baby. I know it's yours now. She looks black. Can you meet me? And he met her in the parking lot near where she lived and said, you know, he just found out he had this baby. So it's a shock. I'm already five, whatever months old. And my uncle will describe it down to the T. I had a blue blanket. He remembers everything, the car, everything. And he said that my father said to her, let me take her to my mom. My mom can raise her. And she said, the adoption papers have already been signed. I just wanted you to see her. You can't take her. It's already been, the decision's already been made. So he was left, you know, between a rock and a hard place from what was described to me. And he shared that story with his other siblings. So it was reinstated to me. And it was a decision that haunted him for the rest of his life. It's very short life. He died in his, I believe in 2000, he died in his early to mid fifties. So, and it wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't a good situation, but yeah. That's where he was. He was, I don't know what to do. Your mom's parents and being pastors. <laughs> and, you know, obviously having your daughter come home pregnant is a major deal. I get mm-hmm, that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, but, at, mm-hmm. but at the same time, if you had been white. I'd have been kept. They would have kept you and helped Absolutely. Them, help their daughter yep. with all of that and stuff like that. Yeah. Yes. 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 And then she had another baby a year and one month after I was born, who was also half African-American. And she relinquished him to the state of New York immediately because he was very dark when he was born, apparently, Mm -hmm. from what was told to me. So there was no questioning that. So I don't even think she held him. She did name me. I, I misspoke earlier, but I don't think she held him or, you know, had much interaction with him. He was taken right away. Just because you have biracial kids and you have a 
black husband or partner doesn't mean that you're automatically not a racist. No and, way. And they, and they looked at me like, really? Like, why would you have no. a, why would you have a relationship with somebody? If, you know, if you're if you're a racist. And I said, it's been going on since the beginning of time. Beginning of time. Look at look at look at our ancestors on plantations. I mean, yes. yes. Makes no sense, but it, but that's what, that's the truth. Right. You and know, how that, incredible that she had the relationship with your father and then, and then had another relationship with another black man, you know, still racism intact, you know, it's intact not like and in tow. You just gave up an entire child to strangers yeah. because of her race. And I understand the pressures. I don't deny pressures. But for those of us that went through this struggle and raised our children, it's perplexing mm -hmm. to say the least. And for that to be the reason the respect was absolutely diminished and disappeared. I didn't, I didn't have anything to add to that. Right. If you, if you learn that your bio mom is young and poor and can't. Absolutely. And, and then this is the most loving choice to, you know, you can make. Absolutely. Fine. But yes. when you hear this, that, you know, money was not a factor and the uh, the okay. decision was solely based on race. So I, I totally understand that there's no respect left. None. So now, now talk about your adoptive parents. So what's amazing about you is that you're biracial and your adoptive parents were are an interracially married couple, right? That's correct. So, yep. so talk about that. Rest in peace to both of them because they both passed. Now, my mother died in 2005 and then my father died in 2019. Wow. Um, very complex upbringing. Okay. Very, very complex upbringing. So look, backstory about my adoptive parents. They did the best they could. Um, my mother was originally, my adoptive mother was originally from London, England. She was Jewish. And uh, she wasn't a practicing Jew. She was what she would refer to herself as a cultural Jew. Mm -hmm. And uh, she broke all the rules in life. She, too, had two children that were half black prior to meeting my adoptive father, mm -hmm. two daughters that were 11 months apart. And she had those children with a Jamaican immigrant and mm -hmm. she met him and they had two children. My Adoptive sisters were extremely dark skinned. And actually, you would not really know that they were biracial just by the look of what our what our what our standard biracial look looks like, right? right? And she had them in the 1950s in London, England, and she couldn't her story was that she couldn't get housing, she could not get a job, she could not get what she needed for them. So she relinquished them to foster care. So they were in foster care for 10 years. And it, it, it's very traumatic, this story, because she met my father. Two years they dated, he proposed, and then she went and got her children. But they didn't know her. Mm -hmm. And so she expected the relationship to be that of, oh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm so thankful for you. you. You brought us to America. But for them, it was terribly hard. So... My mother had very sketchy mental health and that that I think was long standing. Mm -hmm. And so her relationship with her daughters was destroyed. There was no relationship. I didn't even know they existed until I was about 11. Mm -hmm. They 
came here, built a life. He was in the Air Force. She was on her own mostly. He went to Thailand for two years, Europe, you know, traveled all over as the staff sergeant. And she was left on her own a lot. And so losing the relationship with her daughters, devastating, I'm sure. I don't know the complexities of that. She never got too deep into it, but she couldn't have a child with my adoptive father. So they ended up adopting a son in 1970 in Arizona, Phoenix, Arizona, my brother. Mm -hmm. And then my father retired from the Air Force in 1974. And then they headed on over to Rochester, New York, where they settled down, you know, the booming uh, industry, everything that was booming back then. He got a job uh, and they decided they wanted to adopt again. And then they adopted me, 1975. And my mother and my relationship was that of desperation, I would describe it. It was always desperation, desperate for her attention, desperate for her love, desperate for her acceptance and desperate for her attention. She had a favorite child. It was my brother and not favorite like what we would think like, oh, you know, they just, you know, no, it was blatant. Mm -hmm. And so my mother had several mental health breakdowns through my childhood and shifts in her emotions and shifts in her reality. Mm. So she would have lucid moments and very, very sketchy moments. Mm -hmm. She was very much into dark, dark magic, witchcraft. She was very much into Ouija boards. She would make them though. She would have me make them for her. And so she became more aggressive. I just didn't understand my mother. Um, up downs of emotion, irregularity, rage, and then nice, you know, and these extremes, she would pack up her bag and pretend to leave me and my brother all the time. You're bad. You're terrible. I can't be with you anymore. And she would take off down the street with her suitcase and I would be screaming for my mother, please don't leave me. Please come back. And this would happen over and over and over again, and she would have mental breakdowns. And so it, it was a very complex upbringing. And then when my brother went to college, long story short, my brother went to college, I was going into the seventh grade or I was finishing seventh grade, I was 12. I was placed in foster care. My mother had a complete mental break. And I went to foster care for about two years. And so I was in foster care in three different foster homes in a group home. And then the minute that someone wanted to have me stay with them, a beautiful family out in Churchville, Shiloh, she pulled me back in. She brought me back home. But I didn't I didn't trust her or know her at that point. So there was never a relationship after probably about 11. But before that, too. The relationship was that just of me trying to get on her good side. So it was, it was, it was, it was tough. Now, where was your mother during breakdowns and stuff like that? Codependent. Codependent, removed mentally. He was involved with a lot. He was a Freemason. Mm. So he was involved with a lot of different things in the community and doing different things. So he kind of did his escapism Mm -hmm. and he stayed busy. Mm-hmm. so that he didn't have to deal. Mm-hmm. He was never a protector. Mm-hmm. And now I must say my dad was a good man at the core. 
he just didn't have the skill base. He just didn't have the wherewithal. And he came from the generation of see no evil, hear no evil, talk about no evil. I don't know anything. This is just happening in the house. I'm going to mind my business and do good things outside to pretend like this is all not going on. And so he, yeah. So that's how he coped. I think a lot of black men in that era too, first of all, like you're saying, you don't, you don't, tell your business in the streets. So yep. you keep being yep. very private. Yep. And then also, you know, I think my father was raised to kind of closet all of that pain. You know, his, his parents had grown up, you know, during the worst, you know, born in 1913, you know, he, oh was, my gosh. Born, he was born in the 19 late thirties. Yeah. Well, you know, just all of that pain and all of that trauma. And I think that poverty, that stark poverty, stark poverty, that's a trauma in itself. Yes. You know, cutting out tires to put for the soles of your shoes. Like I walk into school in blizzards, like it's, you know, a very terrible upbringing. Yeah. In poverty. You're not happy. No. And then, and then when you're like for my grandparents, when they finally, you know, my father, grandfather was, was in World War II and then came home and became a janitor. And my grandmother was a maid and they uh, lived in um, subsidized housing in, you know, the projects in Queens. Yeah. And, but they, but they were finally, you know, able to live, you know, they weren't, they weren't in abject poverty anymore. So I think because they finally arrived, they just wanted to forget it. It was just painful. And I can understand that. Yeah. I can absolutely understand that. Yeah. And I think they raised my dad to sort of be like, we don't talk about that. Let's just forget it. No emotional stuff. No, no, we don't. We don't do that. There's none of that. We're just surviving and making it and grinning and bearing it. Yeah. Yeah. If you behave yourself, if you act a certain way, you'll be fine. So he didn't really have the tools to deal with it when he himself experienced racism. Yeah. It's deep. It is deep. It's very deep. (laughs) It's very, I could go on for days with this, honestly, because I tell you, you know, people don't understand the level of disdain that people have for biracial people mm. because we are the exact replica or representation of what they don't want. Mm-hmm. So it's like the fact that we live and exist makes people very uncomfortable mm-hmm. and people want to box you in. They have to figure you out and box you in. If they can't do that and we're not boxable really, Mm-hmm. So it's like for them, it's like, well, what do, where do I put you? What do I do? Mm-hmm. And so it's a, I make people very uncomfortable and I know that about myself and I've accepted that. Mm-hmm. And I've walked into every room unfazed. Did, did black kids kind of accept you or, or did white kids accept you? Like who, who were your, like, who was your best friend in middle school or high school? They have one. Yeah, I didn't have a best friend. Um, I, I always tried to have a best friend or wanted to have a best friend. Mm-hmm. That was like my goal in life. I, I have to have a best friend. It wasn't bestie at the time. It was just his best friend. Yeah. And I tried. I have to tell my story real, right? Yeah. But African-American girls in my community could not stand me. I was public enemy number one. And so what ended up happening is I became... I couldn't beat them, so I joined them. 
And then I became a tussler. Mm -hmm. So for me, you weren't going to punk me. You weren't going to tell me. You were going to confront me. You were going to get beat up. And then we would just handle it after that because I had to prove myself time and time again. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I feel it. I That feeling is unforgettable. It's palpable. And I can feel it now when I walk in a room. Mm -hmm. My white counterparts, my white peers, it wasn't that they didn't accept me. They just didn't anything me. They really didn't want me around, but then they, you know, their parents didn't want to ha me hanging with them. But at the same time, they probably thought I was pretty cool, but that's as far as it went. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But the boys, the boys like me. Yep. <laughs> a lot of boys liking me, but I wasn't, I wasn't, yeah. I was a tomboy. I was, I, I wanted to hang around the guys and play basketball, football. And, and I had a guy tell me one time, he said, you can't come back here to play football. And I was like, why? And he was like, yeah, we can't tackle you. Like, <laughs> out of the question. And so my heart was completely broken because now I know, but I didn't know then I was like completely a mess. But that was where I kind of found refuge because the guys accepted me. Mm -hmm. But I thought it was because they thought I was cool. But it wasn't that. Mm -hmm. um, but now to understand my, my African-American peers why they felt the way they did. Now I have a better understanding of why I was, you know, who was this almost white girl coming around here trying to take our man, blah, 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 blah. You know, I understand where the aggression comes from. And the beautiful part about my mother, I must say my adopted mother, she prepared me for that. She told me this world is going to say you're black and it doesn't matter what anybody tells you. It doesn't matter what anybody says. You're a black woman. So she always, she's like, I don't care what anybody tells you. That's who you are. And that's what it's going to be. And that was a blessing that she prepared me like that because mm -hmm. I wasn't blindsided from what happened, you know, from what I was going to encounter in the future with several N words and, and other things. But but at the same time, confusing because she told you you were a black woman, but you weren't yes. accepted by other black women. So and she would repeat that. You're yeah. still black. <laughs> I don't care what they say or feel. But when you go out to the greater world, mm -hmm. you're you're a black woman. Mm -hmm. When you go to Italy, when you go to Europe, when you go around the world, some places, maybe not. But she definitely wanted me to have that preparation, mm -hmm. which was a blessing. Mm -hmm. But it was confusing growing up. Why doesn't anybody like me? I never thought it was about my looks. Mm -hmm. I thought it was just I wasn't a likable person. But I, I never knew why. Mm -hmm. I just thought that I was, you know, one of those outsiders, outcasts. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, I'm writing a book about um, raising biracial kids. And one of the chapters is on colorism and just how tragic colorism was because or it was and is. Yes. Because, you know, where it came from, you know, yes. as you as you know, you know, just yes. the biracial kids fathered by their enslavers. Yes. And then receiving preferential treatment on yes. plantations. Yes. So yes. now they get to work inside where it's a little bit better than working in the fields. And the resentment yeah. and the jealousy that they received, but at the same time, the slave wife, slave master's wife didn't like them, you know, and rejected right. them. So, so rejected from both and, yeah. and how that has 
those seeds they're everywhere you know they're everywhere. they're in america they're in they're in the west indies there's colorism in the west oh, indies absolutely absolutely you know, so just that the, the closer you are to white the more privileges that you get yes and therefore the more resentment you receive from yeah. darker black people yes and not neither of it is our fault you know <laughs> neither of it is our fault yeah but at, the same, time, but at the same time, if we understand it, if we understand that I'm going to receive some privilege, I'm going to yeah. receive some benefit of the doubt because I'm lighter. If mm -hmm. I know that and own that, that will help. I think the worst is when we're in denial of that. Yeah, yeah. that's ridiculous. Yeah. You can't, you, you know, even my children, I have a very light child. Mm -hmm. And I have extremely melanated child so much so that I walk in the room and they're like, that can't be your mother. <laughs> what? Oh, you look alike, but whoa, you know, we're at the two totally different ends of the color spectrum. Mm -hmm. And I see the difference with the way that my lighter skinned children are treated and the way he's treated. Mm -hmm. It's different. Mm -hmm. But my awareness helps him. My awareness helps my other children because mm -hmm. they feel it too. Cause some of them look mixed. So yeah, it's it, neither of it is our fault, but it is the truth that we have to live in and accept that yes, we do receive privilege. And that's why I have to be an advocate and that's why I have to be vocal and that's why I have to be outspoken. That's why I have to be at my job, demand respect for all of us. Yeah, once you understand that and you realize and I educated myself and I understood why my brothers and sisters were the way that they were with me, Mm -hmm. And I re respectfully acknowledge that and then move forward in power. Mm -hmm. It's undeniable. That we have an access that other people do not have. Absolutely. And we, and we could either use that and just benefit by it and forget, or we can use it for good. That's it. Um, and I, I remember talking to somebody about, you know, it's it's the issue of assimilation. Like it's easier mm -hmm. for it's easier for us to assimilate being lighter and being more received sometimes in white circles, sometimes. So it the the temptation is greater to try to assimilate, but if you assimilate, then you lose yourself. I can I, I just mm -mm. no no assimilation. Yeah. Um, I had a patient ask me today, this is the type of stuff that I deal with. So I, I had a patient ask me today, are you a secretary or are you a real nurse? Now she was upset because I was giving her an answer to something she didn't want to hear. Mm -hmm. And I said, well, I, I'm, I'm a nurse and I'm your doctor's direct nurse. I work one-on-one -on -one with your doctor. And she was like, oh, are you that black girl? Oh yeah, I get that all the time. I also got a comment. I've, I've gotten several. I've got one uh, patient told me, I don't use the N word and he said the word uh, until I get to the parking lot. I won't use it in here. Oh, isn't that great? And then I have to check you. I don't let you get away with that. Like, oh, let me be professional, move on. No, let me look you in your face and tell you how you're not gonna say that again. Mm -hmm. And so, like you said, you either use it, you know, the power is yours to ignore it or the power is yours to go against it. Mm -hmm. And so another patient said to me, 
Just for example, another patient said to me, oh, why is the aspirin white? And I ignored it the first time. And then he said it again. And I said, I'm sure you're going to fill me in. He said, because it works. And I said, what does that mean? He's like, oh, people of color don't work. And I was like, really? Because you see me sitting here. And that's when I had to pull his chair into my chair, like literally pull the chair eye to eye and said, now, what made you think you could say that to me today? Mm. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Oh, gosh, that was bad thinking because you feel like you could say what you want. Mm -hmm. So educating the office that I work on, educating the people that I work with, I don't ignore any racial direct or indirect offensive comment. Mm -hmm. I pull in HR. I do. I go all in because we're not going to tolerate that. Mm -hmm. So it is about what cape you put on. Mm -hmm. You know, you're going to put the cape that you ignore everything and you just become invisible. Or you're going to put the cape on as brave, brazen and bold and says, "Okay, you got the right, right game, wrong person. (laughs) You know, so it's I know God made me bold. So Mm -hmm. I I take those moments. I take them and I and I tuck them under my arm and I make touchdowns because we we're going to educate the people and we're going to rise above it. But we're going to deal with it. Yeah, it's different because of your mother's mental state. But would you say that the culture in your home was because your father was away a lot and all that stuff? Would you say that the culture in your home, the food you ate, the music you listened to, the stories you heard, the books on the shelf, was that more white culture or was it a blend of both? There was no white culture. Okay. The only white culture that I had growing up was uh, my mother's conversations with me about England, about, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, her Judaism, her upbringing, you know, her, her dealings with the British community and what she went through with discrimination of being a Jew and things like that. Now the cooking, she tried to be soulful. (laughs) It wasn't always the best, but there were, you know, the music, the, the television programs, everything was, you know, predominantly African-American. Yeah. There was not really white culture. I don't think it was because my dad so much I think it was more my mom Mm. because she listened to Motown and she watched good times and things like that and she had assimilated Mm -hmm. to the black culture so she became more you know culturally ambiguous not visually but culturally she I didn't know my mother was white growing up (laughs) I didn't know she was white I mean I didn't know what that was but I didn't know she was white until people were saying oh your mom's white you know that type of a deal and I was like what that she's not white yeah she's white um, no it was more my mother Mm. very cool and did you have a relationship with your father's parents your black grandparents I never met his father Mm -hmm. his father passed away when he was very young and in the military when he went away my grandmother wasn't now i met my mother's mother too she lived with us for seven years and she spoke yiddish and so i learned some of that 
but my father's mother was not very affectionate, loving, typical, atypical grandmother. She was, she treated me as though I was adopted. Okay. Uh, yeah, there wasn't like the all the cousins and things. Yeah, they couldn't. They they. I wasn't well received with that that family at all. Like you could only love quote unquote your own. Yes. It's a it's a very old mentality. Um, it is. It yeah. is. But they they let that. They definitely made me feel as though I was an outsider. Mm. Definitely. I can remember one time we had a dog growing up named Cookie. <laughs> and we would visit my dad's family in Maryland. And I loathed it. Like I used to have anxiety. I didn't know I had anxiety at the time, but I had this thing, this feeling, this nervousness. And I remember going to Maryland and our dog was there and his sister, his youngest sister walked up with her friend and introduced the dog and not me. I'll never forget that. Wow. At nine years old, I'm standing there like, is this, I can remember in my head thinking, is this happening? And she said, this is my brother's dog, Cookie. I love her so much and gave her a little pet. And I was standing there on the porch looking around and they didn't even speak to me and they walked away. And so that was kind of the the vibe. Yeah. Wow. What would you say to people who adopt transracially? I, 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 I have to be honest. Please. I, I, I try to hold back sometimes, but I really feel like I have to be honest. I feel like you should feel any child, whether you adopt or have your own, as a blessing. Mm-hmm. But I feel that you shouldn't feel as though you're saving the world mm-hmm. and that you have the poster child situation. Mm-hmm. I feel like there needs to be a lot of education on the black culture and to keep that vibrance going with that child. Mm -hmm. But they're not, you know, they're not out for show. It's Mm -hmm. it's not one of those situations where I feel like you need to be rewarded because you decided to do this. I believe that it needs to look and feel as natural as possible Mm -hmm. with the, the awareness that you're different than Mm -hmm. the rest of us. And we're not going to ignore that, which I think a lot of times happens if we ignore it, then it's not different, but it's very different. And I think those things need to be celebrated rather than ignored. Mm-hmm. And I think anytime that a child is adopted, it's a beautiful situation because the alternative. But I believe that it has to be a lifelong dedication mm-hmm. and understanding and sensitivity to the struggles of African-American children mm-hmm. and the future, especially young men mm-hmm. um, in this world. So. It has to be handled with care, education, and consistency, and a whole lot of love, but not as though you have a project, right? That you are acting out in front of the world. And I tend, I, I see that. Mm-hmm. I see that, but I also see some beautiful people that just want to love a child that needs to be loved. And I think that if you're willing to do that and put that work in and be realistic, then it'll be a successful situation. You have to surround yourself. Yes. Kind of and bury yourself in it. And actually, I have a friend, a dear friend. He's actually Wilt Chamberlain's biological son. Oh, wow. Wow. Yeah, that's a whole deep situation. Him and I became friends, biracial, mother from England, kind of the same, kind of similar Mm -hmm. upbringing. But he was adopted by a Caucasian family in Wisconsin. Mm Mm-hmm. 
I believe. But they immerse themselves in the black culture, not to be black, but because they adopted three black children. And they said, we are going to do everything we can to make sure that you see, know, and understand that you are black. And I respect that. Yes. It's brave and it's bold to adopt a black child. Mm-hmm. Okay. Period. End. But it's, it's, it's deeper. And there's a deeper level of respect that I have for somebody that says, okay, not only am I going to do that, I'm going to do the work. Mm-hmm. I'm going to do the work that it takes in order to make sure that this child is protected, aware, and loved and conscious and woke. That's an endeavor. Yes. It's not just a one-stop shop. You adopt and you move on and it's over. No, there's, there's complexities with adoption that run deep. And yeah, if you're going to do that, you have to do everything that it, that it takes. Yeah. I don't know if you watch on Kaepernick in black and white like series, but I, I, I appreciated that so much. And um, I know he got pushback because, because he criticized his adoptive parents. He was very, I feel like, especially towards the end, he was very loving towards them. And he said in interviews that he loves his adoptive parents. Absolutely. But, but he also told some of the harder truths. He was honest with some of the hard parts. And he got pushback about that because there's this attitude of you should just be grateful. You should be grateful that you weren't aborted. And I'm going to tell you, that is the number one line that I have gotten. Yeah. You should be grateful that she didn't murder you, that she didn't kill you and that someone took you. So you have to have this. And there is, I absolutely agree. There is this feeling of consistent lifelong gratitude that you're supposed to just be thankful that you were rescued and, and, and you know, picked up and, and, and given this new identity and this new life. There's like this unwritten rule of walk around thankful all the time. Mm-hmm. You know, and who does that? Right. <laughs> who lives like that? Nobody lives. I'm glad you had me. I'm glad you birthed me. Oh my God. You know, you don't even do that with your biological family. Like right. nobody does that. Yeah. So yeah, there's this feeling of how dare you speak that truth because you know who would want you otherwise? Yeah. It's it's crazy. Which just compounds <laughs> the sense of there's something wrong with me and I'm not oh lovable. Oh I'm not lovable. I have to. I have That's to whole story. that you love me. Yes, and yeah. you tend to you you adopt that mentality mm-hmm. and that spirit, and you function in your life like that with everyone. Mm-hmm. You know, th- you know. Oh, thank you for loving me. Thank you for being my friend. Thank you for being in my life. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you for not leaving me. Thank you know. There's always this feeling of you know, that abandonment and rejection has you constantly, you know, trying to win them over. So there's this like undercurrent of, I should be thankful for anybody in my life. It's a lifelong struggle. Mm-hmm. I struggle with unworthiness, with rejection, with abandonment. Mm-hmm. You know, I've learned things about myself that, you know, I, I have I have deep abandonment issues mm-hmm. and I'll try to get rid of you before you get rid of me. Let's just get it done. Let's just, you know, let's just move on. Let's just stick it to me. And so it's um, it's something I had to become very aware of mm-hmm. to gauge. Yeah, it's a sad it's a sad mentality. How has all of this, you know, your 
uh, adoption experience, your racial experience, how has that influenced how you parent? Well, I'm going to say my, my daughter by default, like she got the short end of the stick. <laughs> I had her at 19, 19. Mm-hmm. I'm just coming into my own and I'm 48. Mm-hmm. So it's, I didn't even have a clue at 19, mm-hmm. but I raised her mm-hmm. and I did what I needed to do. I was very, I, I sheltered her. I, I was very, you know, kind of a helicopter parent with her. Mm-hmm. So I would have done things a little different, but I think with my other children, I'm different now because I think I'm softer. I think I'm, I'm more conscious of them and how they feel in tune because I adopted some of those mentalities and behaviors as well. Mm-hmm. And I was in a bad marriage. Mm-hmm. So it hindered really therapeutic, loving relationship that I could have had with my children because it was complex. But I think now I have a great relationship with my children and, you know, forgiveness and uh, understanding and growth and healing mm-hmm. all take a part and how you parent and how you see your children. Mm-hmm. And so now I think that I'm in such a different place in my life that we have a great, we have a very open relationship and it's a beautiful thing. Mm-hmm. So to anybody watching or hearing or listening, forgiveness, understanding, you can grow into something else with the people that you love. It doesn't mm-hmm. have to stay where it is. But it it took understanding me because mm-hmm. my background is like different. <laughs> it's very different. Mm-hmm. So yeah. it took a lot for me to get to the point that I am right now, right here, right now. It mm-hmm. took a lot of interpersonal growth mm-hmm. and honesty about myself. Mm-hmm. Like I wasn't doing this. Mm-hmm. I needed to do this and understand me why I had anger, why I had resentment, why I had bitterness, why I was withdrawn, isolated, and different things that I deal with when I go into kind of my hibernation mode where I can block everything out. But it's a survival coping mm-hmm. mechanism that I had to come out of and force myself out of. But it, it, it's been ebbs and waves with mm-hmm. my parenting, but I feel like I'm in a great place right now. Mm-hmm. Thank God. Thank God. Let me tell you, I couldn't do it without him. Yes. When I was four years old, I was baptized, but it was um, it was just a practice. Mm-hmm. And I was baptized in Maryland, my father's hometown. And I was baptized in a red dress, long red dress. I have the pictures. I had a vision of God, a full vision. And in this vision, I was in the clouds. I can see clouds. And then as the clouds are dissipating under my feet, I knew I was in the cloud and I could see the the cloud dissipating. And under the cloud was the lines of a hand. I could see them. And I was standing on this line, lined hand. Mm -hmm. And I'm looking and, and, and I hear a voice. And the voice says, Jenny, this is your father. And he says, you will always be in the palm of my hand. Mm-hmm. This was at four. 
This was the same year I found out I was adopted. I had visions prior to my parents' home. Who was this? I would ask my parents, who did I, who am I seeing? Um, you know, as a child, I see someone and they look different than you. So finally they had to tell me I was adopted. But that same year I found out I was adopted, God knew what my journey was gonna look like. So mm -hmm. I'm always going back to that vision of being in the palm. I didn't know scripture, I didn't know any of that. But he told me I was gonna be in the palm of his hand. And to this day at 48, I always have been. Mm -hmm. You know, when no one has been there and there's been times no one has been there. Mm -hmm. Say, God, mm -hmm. go here, walk through that door, say that to that person. He's he, he has been my father, my mother, my everything. So when I tell you I couldn't be here in my right mind without God, there's no way. Mm -hmm. There's no way. The level mm -hmm. of rejection, the level of consistent rejection that I dealt with in my life, I would be mush mind. Mm -hmm. So I'm thankful to God that he has kept me, preserved me, especially my mind. Yeah, I'm not on any medication right. and, and not knocking anyone that is. Yeah. And I haven't required it Yeah, because I know I know where my help comes from. I, I where my faith lies. I know where I can go for help. I know whose name I can call out in when I'm in need in the midnight hour. I mm -hmm. don't need a physical person, mm -hmm. but I need a physical person. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. But yeah, so God introduced himself to me and he's been my, my, my best friend ever since. My best friend. Thank you so much um, for, oh, for this yeah. story. It's just, like I said, I, I, I heard little bits of it and to hear more of it. Um, I look forward to hearing yet more in the future. Yes, <laughs> yes. Thank you so much for coming on my show and sharing with us. I think it's going to be really helpful. Well, um, thank you. Yeah. Thank you for what you're doing and your platform and that you give people, you know, a voice. Yeah. And then allow people because there's going to be people listening that will never say a word to you. Mm -hmm. They're just going to be listening. Mm -hmm. And you give them the ability to connect with something mm -hmm. that they're hearing. Yeah. So that's 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 amazing. Thank God. Yeah. Keep on doing the work. Well, you too, right back at you. <laughs> yeah, you know it. <laughs> All right. I'll see you soon. Okay, you got it. This is Nicole Doily. Special thanks to Dan Parker for producing Let's Talk and thank you for listening. Please rate and review and also check out NicoleDoily.com for some free giveaways. We'll see you next time. Mm -hmm.